Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox, hosted by Richard Lummis. What makes a great leader? Is it genetic or can you learn leadership skills? Join Tom Fox and Richard Lummis in this podcast, where they consider leadership from a wide variety of perspectives, academic, behavioral science, history, popular culture, the movies, and much more. You'll learn about specific tactics and strategies that you can bring to your own leadership toolkit. 12 O'Clock High is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we look at the lives of the Greek Alcibiades and the Roman Coriolanus. We consider their lives, compare and contrast their leadership styles, and bring forward their leadership styles for lessons for the 21st century business leader. 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, this is Richard Lummis, and I'm here with Tom Fox for another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. In these discussions, we draw what we hope are interesting examples from our own experiences, history, business, literature, and politics, to examine what constitutes good leadership and extract lessons we can use to improve our own leadership skills. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Plutarch was a Greek writing at the end of the first century, beginning of the second century AD during the reign of the Julio-Claudian emperors. The Roman Republic had been essentially overthrown, but some of the forms remained, such as the Senate, consuls, tribunes, etc. The book we're discussing, Lives of the Noble Grecians and Romans, is also called Parallel Lives, and it consists of a series of paired biographies, one of a Greek and one of a Roman, followed by a commentary comparing and contrasting their lives. The focus of the biographies is on moral character and its influence on events, but they also display many of the different strengths and weaknesses of the Greek and Roman forms of government, and I suppose the types of character development they emphasize. Today we're comparing uh, the famous Greek Alcibiades with the Roman general uh, Coriolanus, and as before, I had known the name Coriolanus from Shakespeare, although I confess I had not read the play, but I knew nothing about the, him before uh, today's readings. We're going to start with Alcibiades, who's one of the most fascinating characters to me in ancient history. In some respects, he, he reminds me of King David of Israel in terms of a very complex character. He's born in Athens about 450 B.C., and was fabulously beautiful, intelligent, wealthy, and charismatic. Despite being a student and friend of Socrates, he's also cheerfully amoral. He rose to political prominence in the midst of the Peloponnesian War as a politician and soldier. There had been a peace treaty agreed to, but both sides were kind of nibbling at the edges of it. So the Spartans sent ambassadors to Athens with full power to arrange all unsettled matters. Plutarch attributes Alcibiades' hostility to the treaty to the fact that the general Nicias was credited with the accomplishment of it, and Alcibiades was envious of it. The Athenians had initially received the Spartan ambassadors well, but Alcibiades met with them in secret before they were to speak to the Ecclesia, the, the Athenian assembly, and urged them to deny that they had diplomatic authority to represent Sparta, and instead allow him to assist them through his influence. They agreed, and impressed with Alcibiades, they separated themselves from Nicias, who genuinely wanted to reach a peace agreement. The next day, during the assembly, Alcibiades asked what powers Sparta had granted them to negotiate, and they replied, as they had agreed, that they had not come with full and independent powers. 
Alliance was in direct contradiction to what they'd said before, and Alcibiades seized on the opportunity to denounce their character, cast suspicion on their aims, and destroy their credibility. Decreased Alcibiades' standing while embarrassing Nicias, and Alcibiades was subsequently appointed general, but it shows his just utter unscrupulousness. He took advantage of his uh, increasing power to create an alliance between Argos, Mantinea, Elis, and other states in the Peloponnesus, and in contrast to Pericles' strategy of, of uh, entirely naval campaign, threatened Sparta's dominance on land. It was a grandiose scheme for an Athenian general at the head of a mainly Peloponnesian army to march through the Peloponnesus, um, but they were ultimately defeated at the Battle of Mantinea and were forced to withdraw. In 415 BC, Alcibiades was one of the biggest boosters of the Sicilian campaign, which Plutarch attributes to his desire to con conquer not just Sicily, but Carthage and Libya as well. Alcibiades and Nicias were appointed co-generals of the expedition in order to counterbalance Alcibiades' rashness with Nicias's caution. Right before the expedition sailed, however, the statues of Hermes in Athens were defaced. Um, one of the sources says that their, their faces were defigured, disfigured, but the other ones seem to agree that their phalluses were knocked off, um, an act of sacrilege that was regarded as a very bad omen. While en route to Sicily, Alcibiades' enemies in Athens had him accused of the sacrilege, and he fled to Sparta, knowing what the outcome of his trial would be. He adopted Spartan dress and customs, and according to some sources, gave the Spartans advice, which enabled them to turn the Sicilian expedition into a complete disaster for Athens. <clears throat> he took some time off to seduce and impregnate the wife of the Spartan king Aegis, earning his undying enmity. Having alienated the Spartans, he now fled to Asia Minor and the protection of the Persian satrap Tissaphernes. Plutarch comments of Tissaphernes that he was a lover of guile and wickedness who admired Alcibiades' address and wonderful subtlety. The Persian Empire's main goal during the Peloponnesian War was to keep the Greeks at each other's throats. But Athens, with its Ionian colonies, was a bigger headache for them than Sparta, so they tended to side with Sparta mainly by funding them. Alcibiades was angling to return to Athens and conspired in the overthrow of the democracy and the installation of the oligarchy of the 400, which recalled him as general, mainly on the belief he could influence the Persians by using Tissaphernes to side with Athens. <clears throat> when the 400 executed many of their political opponents, the army called on Alcibiades to return to Athens and start a civil war. But on this occasion, he resisted the appeals of the multitude and instead prevented Tisphernes from sending the Persian fleet to support the Spartans. After the 400 were overthrown, Alcibiades won the naval battle of Abydos by timely intervention, and then he went to Tisphernes for reasons that are unclear, who then had him arrested in order to curry favor with the Spartans and alleviate the suspicions of the Persian king. Alcibiades subsequently escaped and then credited Tisphernes with helping him in order to disgrace him in the eyes of the Spartans and the Persians. After several further victories, he was recalled to Athens, crowned and named general at land and sea with absolute power. His estates were restored and he was uncursed by the priests. He sailed to Andros, but failed to take the city. And Plutarch notes at this point, certainly if ever man was ruined by his own glory, it was Alcibiades. 
for his continual success had produced such an idea of his courage and conduct that if he failed in anything he undertook, it was imputed to his neglect, and no one would believe it was through want of power. At this time, the Athenians were short of money to pay their troops, and especially the, uh, the rowers in the navy. And on one occasion, when Alcibiades was off raising funds, Antiochus, Antiochus violated his direct orders and sought battle with the Spartan general Admiral Lysander and was destroyed. Alcibiades' enemies used this against him to get other generals appointed. Alcibiades, knowing how this is going to work out, hired a mercenary army and raided Thrace to raise himself a fortune. The new generals negligently posted the fleet in an unfavorable position at Aegis Potomai, and Alcibiades went to them and warned them, but they ignored and insulted him, and he left, suspecting treachery. Lysander shortly thereafter destroyed the Athenian fleet, and then took Athens itself and destroyed the Long Walls. At this point, Alcibiades fled first to Bithynia and then to Phrygia, because the Spartans remained fearful of his abilities. Lysander initially resisted, but he was eventually directly ordered to assassinate Alcibiades, either for reasons of state or the personal enmity of King Aegis. Plutarch mentions an alternative explanation that he was killed by the brothers of a local noble lady that he'd seduced. So that was the life of Alcibiades. Life of Alcibiades. Tom, what can you tell us about Coriolanus? We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. Coriolanus, Richard, was uh, someone I knew from Shakespeare, and uh, I was interested to see the parallels in his reported life, at least reported by Plutarch, and in Shakespeare. He was a Roman general who is said to have lived in the 5th century BC. He received the name Coriolanus because of exceptional valor in the Roman siege of a Volsian town, Corioli. He was subsequently exiled from Rome and led troops of Rome's en enemy, the Volsi, to besiege the city. Uh, in ancient times, it was generally accepted he was a real individual, appearing in uh, works of Livy, Plutarch, and Dionysus. However, more recent scholarship uh, has brought this into question. Nevertheless, um, the story of Coriolanus is uh, the basis for the tragedy of Coriolanus, as written by Shakespeare. He came to claim came to fame as a young man. Uh, with uh, during the siege of the town Corioli, the Romans were focused on the siege, but another Volsian force uh, arrived and attacked the Romans, and uh, he was able to rally the Roman troops and not only repel the enemy that was um, attacking them, but also uh, charge through the town and um, defeat the Volsioli uh, um, who were in the city of Corioli. Uh, however, in 1491, uh, two years after his victory and being enshrined with a name, Rome was recovering from a grain shortage. A significant quantity of grain was imported from Sicily, and the Senate debated how it should be distributed to the commoners or the plebeians. Coriolanus advocated the provision of grain should be dependent on the reversal of the pro-plebeian political reforms, which arose from the first session plebis in 494 BC. The Senate thought that Coriolanus's proposal was too harsh, and the populace of Rome, the plebeians, were incensed at this proposal. 
and the tribunes put him on trial. The senators argued for the acquittal of Coriolanus, or at least a merciful sentence. He, however, refused to attend on the day of his trial, and he was convicted. He therefore thereafter fled to the Volsii in exile. He was received by them and treated kindly, and he persuaded their leader to break their truce with Rome and lead an army against, and he would lead an army against Rome, which he did. Uh, he defeated several Roman towns, colonies, and um, allies. He took Ro former uh, Volsian towns, and then they marched on Rome to besiege it. Um, the um, siege uh, was uh, particularly dangerous uh, and uh, risky for the Romans. They sent ambassadors, but there was uh, no response. Uh, they were uh, not accepted into the camp. Uh, priests were sent by the Romans, but that achieved nothing more. And then um, in one of those quirks of history that you, you probably couldn't make up, but yet it happens, and then it finds its way into a Shakespearean drama, Coriolanus's mother and his wife, together with their two sons, went out to the Volsian camp and implored him to cease his attack on Rome. Coriolanus was overcome by their pleas and moved back to the Volsian camp uh, uh, from the city and ended the siege. Rome honored the services of these women by the erection of a temple dedicated to the female deity Fortana, and Coriolanus's fate is unclear at that point, uh, but he took no further part in the war. Uh, obviously, there are questions about this story, uh, but uh, whether it's true or not, it's a great story, and Shakespeare uh, memorialized it. Whether or not Coriolanus is a historical figure or not, a saga preserves the genuine popular memory of the dark and happy decades of early 5th century Rome when the Volsalians overran Latium and actually threatened the existence of Rome. So, um, the play, as I recall, Richard, was I found it to be incredibly dark. Uh, it showed the power of the uh, unruly mass and uh, that they basically uh, exiled Coriolanus and, and he left before he would have been put on trial and, and probably executed. The scene with his mother and wife, I thought, were uh, in the play are very poignant Um once again, whether they happen or not, it really doesn't uh, matter. Um, but uh, what did uh, maybe you see from some of the military or even political comparisons, Richard? Well, the um, one of the things I thought was was interesting was the uh, after our discussion on Solon, one of the issues that first caused Coriolanus to fall into disrepute with the, the Romans was his support of the practice of debt slavery. And the, uh, the issuance of the grain from Sicily that you talk about, um, he opposed uh, handing it out for free or at low price to the people because he thought it would corrupt them. Um, this was not, of course, very popular with the people who wanted to be corrupted. Um, both men um, showed incredible bravery and ability as, as battlefield leaders. Um, yet, um, I guess they both ultimately failed as politicians, despite their differences. Um, Alcibiades was remarkably persuasive in person. 
But when he left, I think his his flaws became more apparent. Um, Coriolanus, on the other hand, was apparently not very uh, likable in in any real sense, um, and yet his his behavior was such that he was uh, generally well regarded. I think that's it's it's very interesting that both uh, both men ended up being exiled and then severely damaging the country that they apparently loved. Um, both men were very good at deceit. Um, I think it was Alcibiades that seems to have enjoyed it more. Um, money Alcibiades needed mainly to support his luxurious lifestyle. Um, Coriolanus claimed not to value it, but I think his uh, his support for debt slavery and um, and opposition to uh, charity um, make that a little uh, unpersuasive to me. Um, and then I think one of the things that I got from Plutarch's discussion was that uh, Coriolanus affected not to want public acclaim, but he actually craved it. And I think Plutarch sort of implies that, you know, the reason he took off to uh, support the Volscians was, was less his political disgrace, but his unhappiness at his lack of uh, acclaim. Um, what do you think this tells us about today in terms of leadership? So, Richard, um, if I could draw back to Coriolanus a moment, in the play, it was portrayed that he was basically exiled, even though he had saved Rome in a great military battle, and that the populace was not properly appreciative of what he had done. And the modern um, lesson for me is that for a corporation, for a business leader uh, today, 2021, there are multiple stakeholders. Uh, it is no longer that you're answerable to your shareholders. You are now answerable to your stakeholders. The um, Business Roundtable in their statement on the purpose of a business corporation said there are five stakeholders, shareholders, employees, uh, customers, third parties, and the localities where you do business. There may be other stakeholders uh, as well. A couple of weeks ago in Houston, we saw Exxon, uh, have a fairly um, humiliating defeat of three board members who were defeated by a, uh, a slate put up by a intestinally small shareholder called Engine Number One. The issue was around um, carbon neutrality, um, the E and ESG, or climate change, whatever you want to call it. But Exxon clearly was not listening to their shareholders. And for enough shareholders to defeat an Exxon-appointed or nominated board, I think tells you that Exxon uh, really misread that situation. And I think that that was uh, what I saw in Coriolanus, uh, particularly around the, um, the grain issue, uh, although, frankly, he, he may have been so politically conservative or, or, or regressive that uh, that was a position he felt like uh, he had to take. But um, you, you have multiple stakeholders, and as a business leader today, uh, you're going to have to answer those, and you may have to answer them in real time on social media. Um, you may not be able to sit down overnight with your comms team or your PR team. So that um, I think it's important uh, uh, to, to recognize that. Um, the other thing, and perhaps more Alcibiades, but Coriolanus as well, is character matters. 
And uh, we have both studied Alcibiades at some length. And he was brilliant in some areas. He was brilliant in uh, battle. He traveled with Socrates and, and debated with and against Socrates. He was uh, an Olympic champion in the chariot. Uh, he was very widely followed by the youth of Athens, uh, but he had character flaws, and he had character flaws that were catastrophic for the people that gave him cover or gave him uh, took him in after his initial flight uh, from uh, the Sicilian ex, ex, uh, expedition. So those character flaws, that's why you have to do extensive due diligence when you're looking at a new CEO and think about CEO succession. I talked to a woman today and we talked about CEO succession. See, CEO succession does not start 30 days beforehand, 60 days beforehand. It starts five years beforehand. And you have to plan and you have to look at candidates and you have to thoroughly investigate them. And um, if someone uh, was accused of something 20 years ago, is does that disqualify them today? Maybe, maybe not, but it's certainly a could be a character defect that could rise its head and uh, hurt your organization. So uh, a couple of, of lessons uh, around that that uh, I saw, and particularly with Alcibiades, um, you know, you can't bed the, the queen <laughs> of the country you go seek refuge at, and at least to the point where it's uh, she bears child. And uh, uh, that's a pretty good sign. Uh, that's something that scans is going on. So uh, uh, whether he uh, he just couldn't help himself, whether he was seduced, whether he thought he could get away with it, or whether it was just a character defect, we don't know. But uh, that was, you know, we clearly saw that pattern again and again throughout his exile from uh, Athens. Well, even before. So I think it's fairly clear that it was a character flaw. But um, but I think that goes to your point that character matters and. Also, with your point that sometimes, especially in today's social media world, the need for immediate response may make some types of character even more important. For instance, we've seen the, uh, the importance of having a level temper and not giving in to fits of anger. And we've seen the importance of not allowing envy of someone else's uh, success to, to poison your views. Um, both of those character flaws would come out very readily, and when when it's called for, when an immediate response is called for, and um, and can lead to some serious problems. Um, I hate to say it, but one of the things about Alcibiades that seems to have worked in his favor was his personal beauty, um, and so that that brings us to the importance of appearances. Um, now, maybe that's one of the reasons that he was less persuasive when not uh, in person, but apparently he was he was able to adjust his his approach to the individual. He's a very good read of others' characters and how to manipulate, which led him to some success until he was ultimately assassinated. I guess, um, Richard, there I wasn't uh, as much focused on the, the actual physical beauty, but I think you're absolutely right. The sources do describe that. But I'm, con I'm continually uh, drawn back to the Andre Agassi phrase that perception is reality and that he was certainly perceived that way. And the sources certainly point us to that. And so I always thought that 
because he was perceived that way. He was received that way. And uh, I think perception is is reality and that in many ways that's even more so in today's uh, social media world. So uh, the, I, I certainly agree the importance of per- appearance is critical. Yeah. Well, I'd like to take this opportunity to put in a plug for the Stephen Pressfield historical novels. The one about Alcibiades is Tides of War. Um, but he also wrote the... Um, I think it's Gates of Fire, which is about the Battle of Thermopylae, which was subsequently turned into the graphic novel 300, which was then turned into the movies. Um, And then for the utterly obsessive detail-oriented, I'd recommend the landmark series of Thucydides for the Peloponnesian War. They also have uh, Herodotus, a Xenophon, and a Julius Caesar, for those who are interested in those particular Authors, they they have a wonderful annotation um, and uh, and lots of very good maps that are that I find very helpful when trying to understand what's going on. Um, on that note, I hope you've enjoyed our discussion of Alcibiades and Coriolanus, and I hope you'll join us next time for another episode of Twelve O'clock High with Tom Fox and Richard Lundis. For now, goodbye. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership. I hope you will join us again next week where we take up the Greek Pericles and the Roman Fabius Maximus in episode three of our series on Plutarch's Lives. This series on Plutarch's Lives on 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, is a special presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.